0: Our text this morning is Psalm 34. Would you turn there, please? Uh, this is a, an acrostic psalm. There are 14 of these uh, alphabetical psalms, <coughs> excuse me, in the Old Testament. <coughs> uh, in this particular psalm, each line begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse one begins with the Hebrew A, Aleph. Uh, verse two with B. Uh, verse C with three, and so forth, uh, and so on through the uh, twenty-two letters of the alphabet. Uh, this is uh, was originally a mnemonic device. It was an easy way to remember the psalm, easy way to memorize it. But I, uh, I like to think of these. Uh, acrostic psalms is the ABCs of faith, the basics, the essentials. Uh, These are the fundamentals. Any good coach knows that if a team is not doing well, you don't uh, concentrate on the razzle-dazzle, you go back to the fundamentals, the beginnings. And that's what uh, David does in these acrostic psalms. What David is doing in this psalm is teaching us how to, how to deal with fear. Fear is a fundamental emotion. All of us feel it from time to time. We all have various phobias. We're afraid of heights, or we're afraid of closed places, or we're afraid of open places. Some of us have some odd fears, fears of being eaten by piranhas, or run over by Dusseldorf, or odd uh, phobias. But I think there's one that we all share in common, and that's uh, fear of human beings, uh, fear of men and women, what they can do to us, what they can say about us, what they think of us, and perhaps uh, that latter fear is the one that's most painful. Now, this is a psalm that teaches us how to deal with the fear of man, if I can put it that way, and And I think what David is saying is that the antidote to fear is fear. He's teaching us to fear and not to fear. And I think you'll understand uh, David's point as we make our way through the the psalm. Now, the title of this psalm tells us uh, that this is uh, David's psalm. These uh, titles, as I've mentioned before, go way back into antiquity at least back to 200 B.C. and probably many years before that, they probably do enshrine uh, an accurate tradition. So this psalm is attributed to David, and we're told, uh, we're given the occasion on which he wrote this psalm. So when he feigned insanity before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. We talked about uh, uh, this event last week and uh, the week before. Here we're given Achish's uh, throne name. Abimelech is a title like Pharaoh or Caesar, Kaiser, Tsar. His full name would be uh, Abimelech, Akish. Uh, Abimelech uh, means uh, my father king. It's Akish's title. You remember the event? Uh, David, the tough warrior of Israel, their great hero, one of whom they uh, sang, they composed poems, composed dances in his honor. Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. This great uh, heroic, epic figure, wimped out, he gave way to fear, Uh, scrawled on the walls, Foamed at the mouth, pretended to be uh, to be insane, and Akish drove him from the court and drove him from uh, from town. Said, "I have enough madmen around me. I don't uh, don't need any more." David went off, uh, humiliated, embarrassed to tears, uh, recrossed the border into into Judea. Really had no place to which he could flee could find no sanctuary with either friend or foe and he wandered off into a region that looks very much like the Hawaii Desert, a labyrinth of uh, broken rock and valleys, cliffs, barren uh, desolate area crept into a cave. It's an area that's honeycombed with caves. We don't know exactly which cave is the cave of Adullam. The one that's uh, pointed out now, traditionally associated with that event, is at the top of a near uh, perpendicular cliff, about thirty feet high, about the height of our ceiling here. And it's a ledge uh, at the top, and then a dark vault that you can just barely see from from ground level. And it was into that uh, place that David crept for refuge. The name of actually means refuge; it's one of the Hebrew words for refuge. Probably named after the fact to commemorate uh, David's. Attempt to find a sanctuary there in that dark, dark cave, bereft of friends. It seems that everyone, for a time, fled from David. He was he was all alone, and in that terrible place, he uh, began to compose his poem. I mentioned before that these poems are David's journals. Out of these experiences, he uh, he wrote his thoughts, and then he. Revised these poems, and restyled them, and reworked them under the, the authority of the Holy Spirit. And, and they were passed on to us. They become our experience. David paints, paints a picture, and then he, he puts us in it. That's what we have here in this, uh, in this psalm. There's Something uh, incongruous about the, the title of this psalm and the, and the tone of it. You would expect David to be crying the blues. Uh, Bewailing his fate, but uh, he doesn't. He launches into praise, adoration, worship, devotion to God. Let me begin reading with verse 1. I will extol the Lord at all times. Uh, Underscore that word all. The word extol uh, is... The word that means to bless, it's used in the Old Testament in opposition to the word curse. You would think God uh, would be accursed in David's eyes at this point, but he he blesses him. He attributes worth and honor to him. He applauds him. He lauds his, uh, his name. His praise, he says, will always be on my lips. We praise what we appreciate. David's just expressing his heartfelt, deep appreciation to uh, to God. Thanksgiving is the word that's used to express appreciation for what God has done. Praise is David's word to express appreciation for who God is. It says his praise will always, always be on my lips. Uh, this is the uh, word Hallel, from which we get our word Hallelujah praise be to uh, Yahweh. That's a it's an exuberant word. It's a word that expresses uh, effusive praise. You know, we we Christians tend to be far too stoic, far too restrained in our emotions. Uh, in Canaanite poetry, occasionally there's an interlude in which uh, the daughters of Hallel, they're called, the daughters of praise are brought into into the play, these uh, Canaanite poems were acted out on the stage. There were dramas, and the Daughters of Hallel would show up from time to time, and they would dance across the stage, leaping, expressing joy. I had a, a professor that used to describe them as the ladies of hoopy. you would say. And that well expresses this, this notion of, of exuberance, joy, enthusiasm, excitement over who God is. My soul, he says, will boast in Yahweh. My soul is just another word for I. Continues on this, uh, along the lines of expressing uh, appreciation. Let, Let the afflicted, the humbled, hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Praise, worship, adoration devotion you know they, those are all uh, pious words those those are words that we use in church we don't normally use those words in in common uh, conversation but we have to understand that David didn't know any any pious words he was this is street talk he's just expressing uh, the kind of adoration that people would normally express the kind of language that was normally used this isn't religious uh, palaver it's just speaking out of his heart using his ransacking his vocabulary, using every uh, common word that he could think of to express his love and devotion and, and appreciation to God. Years ago, when I was serving at Peninsula Bible Church, we used to have Bible studies uh, for seekers, for so unbelievers could come and inquire. We were teaching through the book of Romans. I wasn't teaching on this particular occasion. Someone else was, but uh, we came to the eighth chapter of Romans. But Paul says there's therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And there was a young Chinese woman there who had just recently come to uh, the San Francisco Bay Area from China. She didn't know much English. She was struggling to understand, but uh, those words just broke on, on her. And she realized that the great load of guilt, the burden of her past sin has been, had been lifted. And that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And she had no religious words to express her feelings. She didn't know our uh, Protestant Latin terms. And so she uh, leaped to her feet and she shouted, whoopee, she said. And that's what David is doing. Just Out of the depths of his heart, he's expressing his joy and devotion to God for all that, that God had done for him. Uh, The explanation uh, follows the reason uh, for his praise. You know, we we would expect David to be uh, crying the blues. But the explanation follows in the verses, uh, uh, lies in the verses that follow. Verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with, with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him he saved him out of all of his troubles the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he and he delivers him this uh, humbled man called he said and and the Lord uh, heard furthermore the Lord sees you know our, our humiliations don't humiliate God our failures uh, don't embarrass him. He's never surprised by anything that we do. He, he knows all the hidden corners of our heart. He knows the nooks and crannies, the dark parts of our life that we don't want to expose to anyone. He sees, he sees those areas of our life at a single glance. He's never shocked, never ashamed. He understands. He knows the stuff of which we're made. And even when we fail, he continues to hear, he sees, and he knows, and he understands. He understands our origins, the hereditary hells that we come out of, the, the, the difficult home situations that warped us and shaped us into odd people and the distorted personalities with which we, uh, we confront life. He knows, he understands all of that in those times when we're utterly shamed and humiliated by our sin. He, he's not disappointed, he's not ashamed of us. I think of Jacob, here's a man that came into life uh, marred, and scarred, uh, always hustling, you know, always trying to get his own way, wheeling and double-dealing and trying to work things out. He was born that way. He had a hard machine to drive, as C.S. Lewis said, and yet God was not ashamed to be called the God of Jacob, we're told. God's never ashamed of us, even though we shame ourselves. He hears and, and he knows. And when we fail and we turn to him in humility and contrition, he rushes to our side. George MacDonald says, love is crowding in all around us, looking for the smallest chink by which it may enter in. I love that. C.S. Lewis describes uh, God's love as crammed in space, just waiting. For us to open our uh, our hearts. And when we do, he rushes in and he gives us another start. A, a fresh and a better start than we ever, ever had before. Some of you may know the name of Roy Regals. Uh, he's a little before my time. Um, he was a football player for, for USC. I said UCLA in the first service and I was promptly corrected by a Cal alumnus, but he was a he was a USC football player. In 1926 USC played Georgia Tech in the Rose Bowl. I'm sure all of you remember that game. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the second quarter Roy Regal scooped up a fumble and he started to run laterally across the field. He was hit two or three times and lost a sense of direction and ended up running the wrong way toward the Georgia Tech uh, goal. One of his own players, a man by the name of Benny Lom, tackled him on the two-yard line, kept him from scoring for Georgia Tech. And uh, shortly after that, uh, the gun sounded ending the uh, second half, and as Roy Regals ran out of the stadium, the crowd booed him. Throughout the half, he sat with a towel over his head in the corner, Uh, Cal coach, uh, Nibs Price, uh, didn't say anything through the halftime until about three minutes before they were ready to go back uh, on the field. And then he gathered the team and, and he said, the team that started the first half starts the second half. And Regals was just appalled. He said, I can't, coach. I can't go back in. I've embarrassed the team. I've embarrassed the school. I've embarrassed myself. I can't go back in. Riggs said, "Get back in the game, Riggs. It's the game's only half over." And I say, "What a coach! What a coach! And what a God! What a God we have! It's what He says to us. It doesn't make any difference how badly we fail, how how much of life we've muffed. He, he says, get, get back in the game. The game's only half over.'" Some of the sweetest words I ever heard were uttered to Jonah. You know, he made his wrong way run, too. The Lord said, go east, and uh, Jonah went west. The text tells us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah again. That's what we have to understand. Despite our failures, it doesn't make any, any difference how deep the hole which we have dug. Our Lord knows, and he understands, and he... Cares and he listens, and he hears. And when we turn to him in humility and contrition, he responds. And that's why David sings, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. That's pure praise. We praise what we appreciate. Now, the interesting thing about this note of praise is that David gathers others... uh, in, If you notice the last verse of the last part of uh, the first section, verse 3, David says, Glorify the, the verb is plural, third person plural. Come glorify the Lord with me. Actually, it's second person, it's, it's a command, it's an imperative. Glorify the Lord with me, you all. Let us exalt his name together. Gathers us in. And we know from 1 Samuel 22 that shortly after David composed this poem, or perhaps while he was in the process of uh, revising it, putting it together in its final form, his family came down from Bethlehem and joined him, mother and father and brothers. They were probably being harassed by Saul at this time. and They were in danger he was also joined by 400 other men that are described as those that are in distress. The word means inhibited. They were in debt. The word means burdened down. And they were discontented. They were bitter of soul, the text says. A bunch of thugs. A bunch of renegades that were running away from Saul and his oppressive regime. And they gathered around David. And David says later in verse 11, gather around, I'm going to teach you. And the psalm becomes the means by which he instructs his family and, and his friends. You know, David not only wrote the lyrics to these psalms, he also wrote the, the music. He was an accomplished musician. Even invented musical instruments were told. And uh, he put these uh, poems to uh, the song. And I have this vivid picture of of the 400. and David's family gathered around a fire some evening in the front of that uh, cave and singing this song, hearing it uh, reverberate through those valleys and down those uh, hills or off those hills. He gathers us in as well, invites us to sing God's praises. There's a reason for that praise. It's because God knows and he understands. David says, uh, rejoice with me, and then he turns uh, to, no- to another aspect of, of the psalm, and that is, David says, learn from me. Come, my children, listen to me, he says in verse 11. And I'll teach you the fear of, of the Lord. Now, uh, poems are notoriously difficult to outline because they, are normally, uh, they normally flow out of the poet's emotions. They're more of a stream of consciousness than, than a rational, reasonable argument, logical argument. I tried my best to try to find an outline in this psalm, and I couldn't. And I finally realized what David is doing. He calls first for praise and invites us to join him, and then he instructs us. And this instruction revolves around two centers, what God does for us and what our response is. Or put another way, God's part and our part, and this is what he calls learning the fear of the Lord. He is teaching us to fear and not to fear. To fear God and therefore not fear men and women. And the way we learn the fear of the Lord is to understand two things. One, that he has a part. And secondly, we have a part. Fearing the Lord simply means taking seriously what he has to say to us. It doesn't mean that uh, we need to... uh, Feel uh, craven fear. That's, that's not the word. It has the idea of, of sensing something of God's awe and worshiping Him. Taking Him seriously is the way I like to, to look at it. And if we take Him seriously, we will be delivered from the fear of men and women. Taking Him seriously means that we need to hear what He has to say about what He does and what we do. Now, uh, his part first. And this section of the psalm uh, revolves around two words, the word deliverance and the word salvation. Look at verse 4. I sought Yahweh, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Now, David is is reflecting a a state of mind here in which he finds himself delivered not only from his foes, but from fear of his foes. I think it's Mr. Roosevelt that said, we have nothing to fear but fear. And that often is the problem. It's not the foes so much as it is our terror of them that disorients us. So what David, David is saying is that he has been delivered from Fear. Uh, Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. The angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of God on earth. He is Emmanuel, as we sang. He's always with us. He's always with his people. He's always close to them. He's very near, always. But we don't see him. We're not aware of him. But there are are times and Certain people, certain men and women in the Old Testament got an opportunity to see God made manifest in the flesh momentarily, and those appearance in those appearances he he shows up as the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, for example, Joshua and the nation of Israel were gathered at the slope that led up to the city of Jericho they had no Siege machines. They had no strategies by which they could wage war. They didn't know what they were doing. They had very few weapons. They were shepherds, and they had been slaves in Egypt. They were not fighting men. And Joshua was wondering what in the world to do. So he, he, he you know, he does what all good commanders would do. He tries to reconnoiter. He goes up to Jericho at night, starts walking around the walls, and look, looks at those in, in, in incredible battlements there. Realizes that there's no way that they can breach those fortifications. Probably very much discouraged and confused, and out of the darkness steps his figure. Joshua draws his sword, and he says, Are you for us or against us? And it's the angel of Yahweh, and the angel says, Yes. Yes. In other words, I'm not here to take sides, I'm here to take over. I'm the commander-in-chief, don't worry. I'm going to protect you, I'm going to defend you, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to deliver you from fear. And remember that story of Elisha and his servant that we referred to months ago when Elisha was in Dothan with his servant. The servant looked over the walls of the city and saw the Syrian army encamped around the uh, city. They were there in order to capture Elisha. And Elisha says to the servant, there's more of us than there are of the Assyrians. And, and God opens the eyes of the servant and he sees the angels of the Lord encamped around the Syrian army, encircling the city. This is what David has in mind. The angel of the Lord encamps around those, you see, who, who fear him and he delivers them. Uh, verse 17, the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them and delivers them from their troubles. The word troubles is the word for inhibiting factors in the Old Testament. It, means, it has the idea of pressure. When, when, when our world is beginning to implode, when, when we feel constrained and limited and inhibited, the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and he delivers them. Uh, verses 19 and 20. A righteous man may have many troubles. We say amen to that. Actually, the NIV softens the text. It really says a righteous man will have troubles. Uh, That may surprise some of you. The the word for righteous man here doesn't uh, designate some kind of special pious person who has it all together. That's not the point righteous person is someone who has aligned themselves with God's standards and who is relying upon His grace. That's what it means to be right, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to seek it with all your heart. That's a righteous person. And David says that kind of person will have lots and lots of trouble. We can't expect to be trouble-free in this life. Uh, Paul said, Unto you it is given on behalf of Christ, not only to suffer, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul says, Those that live righteously in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. When the disciples asked what they would get as a result of following Jesus, they said, We've left houses and lands and mother and father, what are we going to get out of the deal? Jesus said, No one has left houses or lands or mother and father who, who will not receive A hundredfold in this life and in the next, and persecutions. So we can expect to be troubled. We will not live a trouble-free experience. There will be bumps along the way. We're going to be bruised and hurt and battered. There will be difficult times, but what David said is that the Lord delivers the righteous out of them all. Not from them, but he protects our heart of hearts. So even though we're pressured, we come to realize that the pressures, the demands, are really demands upon him. So we're not crushed. That's what he means when he says he protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. A verse, which I'm sure you recognize, is quoted in the Gospels to refer to Jesus. When he came to break his legs, he, was already, he had already expired. He would offered up his spirit. This, the writer says, is to fulfill the prophecy. And then he quotes uh, this passage in Psalm 34, Now, one of his legs will be broken. Here David is speaking symbolically of the protection that, that God affords to our heart of hearts. We will not be crushed. That's the point. No matter how much pressure we experience, we will not be broken because he guards our heart of hearts. He delivers us from fear and, and he delivers us from trouble and we may have a, a plethora of troubles, but he delivers, he delivers us out of them all. And then there's a, another uh, verb that's used here that's akin to the idea of deliverance. He saves. Uh, verse 6, this humiliated man called and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. See, what we make of these, of these word studies is a picture of God rushing to our defense. That when we're under attack, when we're assaulted, that God knows and he hears and he understands and he rushes to defend us, takes on our enemies, fights our battles and, and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Some of you know our number two son, Brian. When he was about four years old, uh, I uh, went over to get his babysitter. Carolyn and I were going out someplace, and I needed to pick up the babysitter. And and Brian wanted to ride along with me, so uh, he jumped in the car, and off we went to pick up the babysitter. And when we got out of the car, uh, there was this huge dog uh, lying on the front porch. And Brian was afraid of dogs at that time. And uh, the dog looked uh, fairly... uh, innocuous, he was just lying there. And I said to Brian, I, it's alright, it's a good dog. And uh, Brian had on short pants and he was barefoot. Little bare legs were hanging out. And just as we stepped up on the porch, that dog turned into a heat-seeking hound from hell. I've never seen such malevolence in a dog's eyes. And he went after Brian's little legs and Brian literally leaped straight up into the air and locked his legs around my waist and then scrambled up on my head and he had his legs around my neck and he was holding on to my head and he was screaming bloody murder and and the dog clamped down on my leg and so I was hopping around on the leg that he had hold of trying to kick the dog with the other foot trying to aim a kick that would be da- damaging enough that he would let go and uh, yelling at the top of my lungs for somebody to come out and rescue us and finally the uh, lady of the house came out and pulled the hound off and he was snarling and kept trying to get at me through the screen door the whole time we were standing there and, and Brian was really shaken by that and of course I was too but I was trying to be cool <laughs> <clears throat> and we get in the car and Brian looks at me with eyes about this big around and he says dad I'll go anywhere with you and I thought at the time as I rub my leg his uh, confidence is misplaced but yeah uh, you know, that's the way we, we need to look at our Lord I'll, I'll go anywhere I'll face anything because he is my protector he hears and he knows and he rushes to our defense that's that's God's part That's what he loves to do. And for that, we offer up pure praise. Our part follows. Our part is to take refuge in him. Verse 34, Taste and see that the Lord is good, blessed, happy. This is one of those beatitudes in the Old Testament. Joyful is the man who takes refuge in him. Just taste and see. Try it out. Taste and see that... uh, that his protection is sweet. Verse 22, the Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. I don't think it's accidental that the cave in which David uh, crept was called the cave of Adullam. As I said, it was, I'm sure it was named after. It's a place of refuge. Symbolic, I think, of the refuge that that David eventually took in, in God himself. I grew up in Texas where occasionally we had tornadoes and... Uh, the old timers used to refer to their hidey holes, usually a root cellar, some place that they could run and hide when uh, when a twister came through town. This was David's hidey hole, cave of Adullam. God is our hidey hole. It's the one uh, to whom we run when when life gets uh, difficult and we don't need to come out and fight for ourselves. That's the other part that we play. It's not that we do nothing, because we are psychologically, physiologically wired to do something when we're fearful. We either flee or we fight. Adrenaline starts to flow and our bodies have to do something. Our minds have to move in some direction. We can't do nothing. But what we can do is run for refuge into that place of, of uh, confidence quietness in God's presence and let him fight our battles for us and, and and stop taking things in our own hands. Stop trying to fight for ourselves. Stop trying to defend ourselves. We all have a tendency to go too far when we do so. We explain too much. We get, get too defensive. It's okay to explain yourself, but unfortunately we're inclined to go beyond mere mere explanation. I think that's what David means when he uh, says in verse 12, whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, and who doesn't? I mean, we want to we want to have good days. Who wants to have bad days? And uh, we want to live the good old life, as the Old Testament puts it. Who doesn't want that? Well, David tells us how that can be accomplished. It's by finding refuge in, in God and not not trying to defend ourselves. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking lies. Remember what David did in, in Gath. Tried to deceive. Tried to to uh, apply his own strategy, his own schemes. Tried to work things out on his own. Resorted to the flesh. Rather than God's sure word that he was immortal. David was immortal until his work was done. He had promised David that he would be the next king of Israel. He wasn't king yet, so he had that sure word, but uh, he resorted to his own uh, devices. So David said, I've learned to keep my tongue from evil and my lips from speaking lies. He says to us, turn from evil and do good. Seek peace, that is, the things that make for peace, and, and pursue it. You say, now how in the world did you come up with that? Yeah, I, I wouldn't see that in the passage. Well, I wouldn't either, as a matter of fact, unless Peter had not seen it. So Peter is an inspired interpreter of the Old Testament, and Peter quotes Psalm 34. I struggle and struggle with this uh, psalm, trying to unravel it until I remembered that Peter quotes it. And then I went back to First Peter and read his his commentary on this passage, and all of a sudden it fell into place. Peter was uh, uh, concerned with uh, those in the body that were experiencing a great deal of, of injustice. Slaves who had harsh masters, wives that had hard husbands. And he first of all refers these folks to the example of, of Jesus. He says, to this, uh, this kind of unjust treatment you were called. It's Interesting. It's not a surprise. It's the name of the game. To this trouble you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. What, what example? Well, here he quotes Isaiah. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. One of the early church fathers said that Jesus' greatest miracle was that he did not retaliate in the face of injustice. See, he did not fight his own battles. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. It's not that Jesus said nothing. There were times during his trial when he explained. But he didn't try to protect himself. He put himself in God's hands. He entrusted himself to the one who who judges justly. That's in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. Peter then turns to the question of women who are being treated unjustly and appeals to certain women of old, notably uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, who put her hope in God. And when it comes to being a husband, Abraham, uh, Abraham didn't make it. Had a lot of problems. And uh, Sarah could have, uh, could have rightly, uh, taken things into her own hands, but she, she put her hope in God. She didn't try to defend or protect herself. And Peter says, you're her daughters. If you do what is right and do not give way to fear, isn't that interesting? Uh, same problem that David is dealing with, the problem of fear. And here, here, are, here are slaves that are being mistreated by their masters and they're afraid. I have to take things into my own hands. I have to protect myself. Who will defend me if I don't? Here are women that uh, are being unjustly treated and, and they're, they're inclined to revile. And Peter says, look at Sarah. Look at Sarah. She put her hope in God. Uh, Peter moves on do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult but with blessing give a blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing same thing that David said blessed are those that put their refuge in him you're blessed when you cease trying to protect yourself and you put yourself under under God's strong protection sense of joy and happiness that comes from, uh, from submitting to him. You know, you're not going to get this message from the world. The message of the world is Rambo 1, 2, and 3, and Terminator 1 and 2, and, and you get out there and blow people away if, if they don't treat you right. Uh, this is not the world's message to us. But Peter's message, which is God's message to us, which is David's message to us, Is to not take things into our own hands, but to run for refuge to God. For, Peter says, you don't repay evil for evil or insult with insult. For, and here he quotes our song. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. My, I do not want God's face against me. What he's saying is we're not defenseless. We're defended by the God of the universe, who comes rushing to our aid in those times when we're under attack, and who protects our, our heart of hearts. David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Check it out. Try it, he says. There, there is a, a, a sweetness in life that comes from letting God protect you. The, the other side of the coin is the bitterness that comes from trying to defend yourself. We've all gone through that, where we have we felt that we needed to rush to our own protection and afterwards there's that sense of emptiness and life turns turns bitter but all oh, the sweetness of of the defense that that God brings uh, Linus holds his blanket and he says there's nothing but a shred of outing flannel between me and a nervous breakdown uh, that's the time to taste and see that the Lord is good Israel is at the Red sea their backs are to the wall literally the Egyptians are running their terrible chariots into their women and children. In those days, they welded scythes on the wheels, bolted them on the wheels of their chariots. Terrible weapons. They were about to be mowed down by the Egyptian charioteers. Moses says, the Lord will fight for you. And as for you, you keep silent. Just be still and know that I am God. Uh, Carolyn picked up Ruth Bell Graham's latest uh, book on poetry, Clouds Are the Dust of His Feet, and I want to close with a poem that I found in that, uh, that collection. The Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Look up, O ye of little faith, let doubting cease. The battle is the Lord's. He works in a mysterious way, does not by might nor power but see his spirit move today. Unprofitable servants we, our duty done, we must watch for his victory. So, fearful one, be still and trust. Let's pray. Teach us, Lord, to fear and not to fear. Teach us to take very seriously what you say to us. These are words of truth. Ancient magic from before the beginning of time. We trust you. So in those times when we're under attack, may we learn your part and ours. We know our cries reach your ears. You see and you know, and you rush to our rescue. Our part is to take refuge in you thank you for this this teaching we pray in Jesus name amen